You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. You will find this in the Pew Bible on page 927. We'll be looking together at chapter 18 and verses 1 through 11. And again, you'll find it on page 927 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Well, Corinth, it was situated on an isthmus four miles wide in the middle of Greece. It was an important seaport, a prosperous center of trade and commerce. Homer, he spoke of wealthy Corinth and Thucydides, one of the Greek writers, mentioned it as a military import. Like most seaports, Corinth was a center of licentiousness. It was notorious. So much so, I'm sure you've heard, that the Greek word for a life of immorality was to act like a Corinthian. Here stood the large temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. It was served by no less than 1,000 priestesses who were essentially sacred prostitutes. The Aphrodite cult was thoroughly dedicated to the glorification of sex. There was also the temple of Apollo, their god of music, song, and poetry. He represented the ideal of male beauty. And there were nude statues of him everywhere. Not surprisingly, Corinth became the center 
of homosexual practices. As a Roman colony, the city also received its share of military veterans. So you have here in this ancient city assembled all the races, creeds, languages, cultures of the ancient world, which made, made it truly cosmopolitan. And it was in this notorious city that Paul's strategic eye saw an opportunity for evangelism. As Jesus would tell him, I have many in this city who are my people, surprisingly. And yet the apostle tells us that he was extremely nervous about laboring there. He writes to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Who wouldn't be? Right down in the center of Harlem. Given the city's infamous reputation, I'm not surprised at Paul's feelings. But he persevered in the midst of difficulty for the sake of the kingdom, and not long after settling there, he met his fellow tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. And their friendship developed around making tents and serving Christ. This couple had moved to Corinth because of the decree of Claudius, the emperor, history tells us, had ordered all the Jews who were in Rome to leave. Apparently, the Roman Jews had caused such an upheaval when Christianity arrived that to quell the disturbance and to maintain peace, Claudius just got rid of them. Get out of Rome. And so with Priscilla and Aquila, Paul stayed and worked as he evangelized the Jews and the Gentiles. And each Sabbath, you could find Paul in the synagogue preaching Christ. He was trying with all of his might to persuade Jews and God-fearers of the messianic identity of Jesus. To anyone, at any time, Paul was willing to expound the gospel of Christ. Because he understood that apart from hearing the good news, people perish. You can try to live a decent life. You can be a good citizen. You can even love your spouse and love your children. But unless you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you will wind up in perdition. All mankind is by nature under the curse of God. Paul calls us children of wrath. We're under wrath by nature. And the only way of salvation from the damning guilt of sin is to be found in Jesus. And Paul knew that. There is no other way to be saved. He alone is the Savior. There is no other name under heaven. And it was in large part what motivated Paul to work so diligently. He says again to the Corinthians themselves, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So it seems when Silas and Timothy arrived, he devoted himself entirely to the ministry. He was occupied with the word. And the focus of his labors was the proclamation of Jesus as the promised Christ. The long-awaited Messiah. The fulfillment of all the promises. Specifically in Corinth, Paul dedicated himself to preaching the cross. 
In 1 Corinthians 2, he makes this clear when he writes, I decided to know nothing among you Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's the very heart of salvation. That is the center and the substance of the gospel. Yet there are many in our day who would define the gospel in terms of views. I know the men at the Argyle Inn are studying Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. And this is what liberalism would say is the gospel. Follow the golden rule. Imitate Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. All these things are good and true, but they're not the gospel. They're the fruit of the gospel. All these things are nothing but good views, as John Gerstner would say, but they're not good news. Good views, regardless of how biblical they might be, will never save anybody. Salvation is applied only through the good news of Jesus and his cross. It is only by the historical facts of Jesus' incarnation and his crucifixion and his resurrection that somebody can be saved. And in the moral cesspool of Corinth, Paul was preaching the good news. Christians in Philippi sent him a financial support gift to relieve him from his tent making, though he was entitled to financial support. He even says those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, and yet for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, he was willing to earn his own living. He didn't have to do that. He refused to lay any stumbling blocks in the way of the early church plant. And that was important because in the ancient world, there were traveling hucksters who wanted to fleece the gullible people. They used their oratorical gifts and their dynamic personalities to hustle their followers. And nothing is new under the sun, right? He didn't want to be identified with those who were selfishly ambitious, just taking it for money. He wasn't a greedy street philosopher who pilfered others' money. On the contrary, Paul was offering to everyone the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so Luke reports that the gospel was met with fierce opposition from the Jews, the same kind of hostility and resistance that he encountered elsewhere. They opposed him. They reviled him. They insulted and berated and disparaged him. And he was used to it. He was willing to endure for the sake of the kingdom. Oftentimes, Paul had been beaten, sometimes near death. He had been lashed and stoned and shipwrecked and in constant danger from all sorts of enemies. So this was nothing new, though he was not about to let such injustice go unaddressed. The Jewish opposition to him forced him to turn away from the synagogue and he would take the message of salvation in Christ to the Gentiles. But before he did that, he denounced the unbelieving Jews with a very symbolic gesture. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And every single Jew knew exactly what that meant. 
He was shaking off the guilt of their condemnation. He'd done what he could. He was free from the blood of their souls. He had worked hard. He had preached faithfully. He had labored intensely. And the Jews had rejected Christ. But that's not a sign of failure on his part. No. Because God's word always achieves its purpose. Paul even said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So shaking his garments was indicative of the fact that God would soon shake them off. He was saying, look, I'm done with you. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Let your guilt be on your own head. And if anything could have frightened them into compliance, that should have. But they persisted in their unbelief and their opposition, and they would certainly perish. It was then that Paul took the message of Christ next door to the house of Titius Justus. Now, here was this Gentile worshiper of God willing to open his doors. And don't you sometimes just marvel at the irony of God's providence? This well-to-do God-fearer happened to live right next door to the synagogue. He welcomed this infant church into his home to gather for worship, and the Jews could see them entering. It was right under their noses. And how ironic that God would make the unbelieving Jews jealous by the believing Gentiles. And strikingly, the ruler of the synagogue himself, Crispus, had become a Christian. He was one of the very few in Corinth, we're told, that Paul baptized. And no doubt the opposition against him continued steadily, but by means of the gospel, the Holy Spirit was drawing people to Christ. And because of the opposition, Jesus graciously encouraged his servant Paul. In a vision at night, he appeared presumably as Paul was trying to sleep, and he told him, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. And that's the fountain from which all true courage flows. Christ's presence. I'm with you. Because if God incarnate is with us, whom shall we fear? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Isn't that what David said? Let me ask you a question. What is more frightening than death? Can you think of something? Death. If we're honest, we all dread it. The thought of a separation between the soul and the body, it's scary. But for the sincere Christian, Jesus has removed the sting of death. So we need not fear it. Dying can be difficult, granted. But death, it poses no threat. And yet often my faith is so weak that I need a word of encouragement, and you might identify with me. So the Lord Jesus promises that he will be with me through whatever comes. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, he says. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now that's a promise worth cherishing. The Lord Jesus is able and willing to keep us. And as a matter of fact, the Israelites, through the psalmist, confessed that he did so for them. Psalm 66, we went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. After all, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? So Christ appears to Paul in this vision to encourage him, and despite all the opposition, his gospel ministry would have been fruitful. And it must have been, at that moment, tremendously encouraging. I think it was a pivotal event in the Apostles' Corinthian ministry. He had confessed of being weak and fearful and trembling. But beholding Jesus speaking those words of encouragement eased his fears and soothed his soul and gave peace amidst all the evil. And oftentimes the Lord Jesus does the very same thing for us. An encouraging word, right? A helpful gesture, a profound experience. He sometimes gives us as his children such occasional comforts that will truly strengthen And this is especially true of new converts and young Christians. I remember that as a new convert, I was given just such an experience. You might be surprised to hear that. There are experiences. (laughs) Coupled with the joy of my conversion, which had been not long before this, there were difficulties in my life. And one night, after a run, Laying on my back on the driveway, gazing up into the night sky, I had the most profound sense of God's presence. I can't explain it. I would never build a theology around it, but I experienced it. And it's not something that I would try to repeat. It's a one-time occurrence, but it was precisely what I needed at that time as a brand new Christian. And truly, I remember it with deep fondness even to this day, almost 40 years later. I'm convinced that it was a gift from Christ who was watching out for my soul. And perhaps you've had similar experiences. That's not unique. Oftentimes, it's in connection with the Word of God. A passage or a verse jumps out at you. A sermon or a teaching makes a particular impact. And God uses it to encourage us in our pilgrimage through a fallen world. And there's nothing wrong with such experiences. We delight in them. The problem comes when people base their whole faith upon them. Rather than building upon the truth of God's word, they look for the excitement of the experience. And there's a big difference between experience and experientialism. We often have experiences. Let's rejoice in them. But experientialism, it's a fraud. So after 18 months of ministry in Corinth, Paul was able to reap a harvest, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So first of all, we should rejoice in this text as another in a long line showing God's faithfulness. You know, the Lord Jesus is continuing to build his church by blessing the gospel ministry. He said his witnesses would testify in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the end of the earth. 
And here we see the gathering of Corinthian believers as ongoing evidence of its fulfillment. He's faithful. Of all places, wicked, infamous, corrupt Corinth, a moral cesspool. But the gospel is truly the power of God unto salvation, and God uses it to convert sinners. And all of those who are appointed to eternal life at one point or another under Paul's ministry believed. And thus the Lord Jesus is faithful. He keeps his word. And he's able and he's willing to do that. And if he can produce such amazing fruit in Corinth, he can do it anywhere. No community, no family, no marriage, no soul is beyond redemption. Christ often saves, we've seen before, the most unlikely people. And he redeems the most lost people. People who myself and my humanity and my blindness would say, not him. There's no way. And God in his power and grace and irony saves that very person. They become monuments to his grace and tributes to his glory. And it's just another proof that whatever promise he makes, he is sure to keep. Paul says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me give you an example Once God implants grace and gives the gift of faith, it will never be destroyed. It is continually supplied and preserved by the care and faithfulness of God. A person who falls away after professing the faith never truly believed. That has to be because God is faithful. True faith once given is never taken away. And isn't that a great comfort? You and I both know how sinful we are. Every day we wrestle with temptations and lusts and sinful desires and ambitions. And sometimes we wonder if we're ever going to make it to heaven. But the scripture assures us that the Lord is faithful and he will never let us go, ever. Once he implants that seed of God in the heart, it can never be totally or finally destroyed. He is faithful. Now, having said that, let me also say that this should never lead us to complacency. Because faith is a precious gift. It's a valuable, exquisite jewel. And it must be carefully guarded. If we fail to protect the gift of faith against error or refuse to nurture the gift of faith with the word, it will wither. And a true Christian whose faith has withered is a very miserable person. His faith can be resuscitated, of course, and it will be. But it takes a long time and a lot of effort. I'm sure it wasn't easy for David to be raised out of his backslidden condition. So let's nurture faith by the word, sacraments, prayer. But then secondly and finally, let me also say we should fully appreciate three important reasons why Paul evangelized. Why did he do all this? First, he evangelized because it was something God commanded him to do. 
You know, some people struggle with the idea of evangelism in light of God's election. Have you ever heard this question? If from eternity he chooses those whom he saves, why would we evangelize? Well, at the very least, we should do it because it's a duty. You are the light of the world, we're told. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we can show immense gratitude by obeying the command of God. My friends, let's not get to the day of judgment and hear the Lord Jesus say to us, that person that I put in your life, why didn't you talk to him? That student that I put in the desk next to you, why didn't you speak to her? That employee that was in the cubicle next to yours, why didn't you speak to him? That family that I moved into your neighborhood, why didn't you invite them to church? That was your duty. That's the first reason. The second reason that Paul evangelized was because it was the only way to save sinners. And if we have any sympathy in our souls for those who are perishing, we evangelize. Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. It was for the salvation of souls that the apostle sacrificed so much. There is salvation in no one else because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's not get to the day of judgment and have some poor trembling soul who's just heard the sentence of condemnation pronounced against him say, why didn't you tell me? I sat next to you in class. I worked in the cubicle right next to you. I lived in your neighborhood. Why didn't you tell me? And to watch him go shrieking into the fires of hell. That's the second reason. First, God commands it. Second, it's the only way to save sinners. But third, Paul went about evangelizing because it's an unspeakable privilege. We don't hear very much about this, especially in relation to evangelism, but it is an inestimable privilege to play a part in the salvation of souls. God does not need us to fulfill his redemptive purpose and convert sinners. He doesn't need you and me. If he wanted to, he could gather up all the elect at once by his power and save them. He could do that. But he chooses to save sinners through the instrumentality of his people. Because he not only predestines the ends, but he also predestines the means to the ends. The invitation to church. The hearing of a sermon. The conversation with a friend. Being born again. He works through our prayers and our preaching and our conversations and our good deeds. And what a great privilege it is to be called by God to help save sinners. We're like spiritual midwives 
who have the privilege of seeing new spiritual life. We invite a friend or a family member to church. She hears the gospel. She's born from above. What a glorious thing. And on that last day, with the entire universe assembled, we'll see each other and we'll rejoice. This is what Paul says. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. And we'll rejoice together before the throne of the Lamb who was slain. That's why Paul evangelized. And I pray it's the reason why we do too. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise, to which you're always faithful. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the duty we have to evangelize, for the opportunities we have to do so, and for the privilege we enjoy to be a part of it. Please help us to do so this week, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.